In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. O Lord, make us worthy to pray. Thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one through Christ Jesus our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So thank you all for joining. Um, we've had uh, some really good speakers and discussions over the last few weeks. And uh, today we're, um, we have the blessing of having Daniel Mikowski give this talk. And uh, I, I want to say I really appreciate Daniel's and everyone else who's talked previously for making time and effort to prepare these presentations and to deliver it to the congregation. So thank you all. And with that, I'll hand it over to you, Daniel. Hi, thank you so much. So today we're going to go over the books of second and third John, two uh, very short books. And they close out the Johannine canon. So second and third John, um, it should be noted that they were actually disputed in the early church. Uh, that was mostly because of size. There were also some people who questioned whether they were Johannine. That is, whether the apostle St. John actually wrote 2nd and 3rd John. However, I do believe that 2nd and 3rd John are clearly Johannine in style, and that you can see this from two things. The first is both speak of the new commandment, which you have had from the beginning, which is to love one another, which is in 1st John and in the Gospel of John, and also the Apostle John, when he wrote in 1 John, had a very peculiar word that he used for walking. And he didn't just use a word to say, okay, um, walk in the light, but rather walk about or walk around as if you were walking in a circle, as a pattern of life, walking about in love, walking about in truth. And he uses this same term in second and third John. So I do believe that there's good reason to accept second and third John as Johannine, as they have been received traditionally by the church. And uh, the main commentary I used when I was reading over second and third John was from Father Tadros Malati. Uh, his commentaries are available, many of them in English and also in Arabic, from St. Mina's Coptic Church in Hamilton in Canada. And so you can go there to, to download and read the commentaries for free. And the translation that I will be reading from is my own translation from the Greek. So it might sound a little different than what you might be used to. The audience of 2 John is a little unclear, as Father Malati points out, and he himself remains neutral, on who is the actual audience of the book. 2 John is simply addressed to the elect lady. And some have suggested that this is Mary that John was not in Ephesus at the time that he wrote 2 John, and he's writing back to Ephesus to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And others have suggested that 
the elect lady is a reference to the whole church of God, the elect people, or to a particular local church, or even to a particular woman that John has in mind who he does not name, but not necessarily St. Mary. So there is some question. I actually lean towards the view that it is written to Mary. I do think that makes more sense, although it being written to a particular church would also make sense. And it influences how you read a couple things in 2 John, but not too much. So with all of that background aside, let's proceed to the really deep spiritual stuff, the important stuff, which is the spiritual matter of 2nd and 3rd John and what the Spirit is saying to the churches through these two short epistles. 2nd John begins with the priest to the elect lady and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I alone, but all those who know the truth. Because of the truth, which remains in us and will be with us unto eternity. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. And it is worth noting here that in 2nd and 3rd John, the apostle does not use the term truth to simply refer to an abstract set of beliefs or an abstract set of dogmas, but rather to a person, the person of the Son of God. He is the truth in which we walk and in whom we live and move and have our being, and it is for his sake that we love one another. And it is for his sake that we have grace, mercy, and peace. So John continues, I rejoiced greatly because I have found some of your children walking about in the truth, just as we have received commandment from the Father. And now I ask you, lady, not as if I am writing a new commandment to you, but rather that which we have heard from the beginning, namely that we love one another. And this is love, namely, that we walk about according to his commandments. This is the commandment, namely, that just as we have heard from the beginning, we walk about in the same. And it, it is clear that John is not simply saying, I saw all of your children walk about in the truth, but I saw some or those from your children who are walking about in the truth. Now, this does not mean that not all, it doesn't mean the opposite. It doesn't mean the negative. It doesn't mean that not all of the children of this lady, whether that's St. Mary or of this particular local church, were walking about in the truth. It doesn't mean that he's implying some were wicked, but rather he's saying those whom I came into contact with were walking about in the truth. They were walking about in the light of Christ and in the love and peace of Christ. And so this may have been 
people who had visited John or people whom John was visiting. And perhaps if this letter is written to St. Mary, he's saying, okay, I've gone and visited this other church and I've seen some of your children that they are walking about in the truth where I went. Or if he was writing to a local church, then it may be more along the lines of that some came to John from that church to visit him, to bring him greetings, to bring him news. In any case, the important point is that they were not simply walking as if going in a straight line, but walking about as if walking in a circle, living in the truth and in the peace and love of Jesus Christ as a way of life, as a norm or rule of life. And walking about in the truth, as he says, not just in matters of loving your neighbor, but in matters of loving God. And he goes on to emphasize that in, if we're going to love our neighbor, and if we're going to love God, we have to proclaim what is true about Christ. Not by way of intellectual speculation, but by way of true acknowledgement of who Jesus Christ is, that he is the incarnate word of God. So John says, because many deceivers have entered into the world, these do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This one is deceitful and antichrist. Watch yourselves in order that you do not utterly ruin what you have worked for, but rather receive a full reward. The one who goes beyond or goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who remains in the teaching, this one has the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not give him the greeting. For the one greeting him communes in his wicked works. We love God by loving the truth of and in Christ. And as I said, this is the truth about Jesus Christ, not in terms simply of abstract facts, but of true knowledge of him, true apprehension of him. And this is simply to recognize the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus is the eternal word of God who united himself to true humanity one hypostasis, one nature out of two, that he is one incarnate nature of God, the word. So we don't pry into the mystery. We don't ask questions and, and press further. We don't speculate about, well, how could this be? Or what if his actions were divine and what were human? We can't divide him up like that. He walks on the water and it is not appropriate 
to man. Man does not walk on water. God does not have feet. And yet here is one who is walking with human feet upon the water. So how can this be? But we do not pry into that. We do not speculate. We simply say that is God, the word incarnate, walking upon the water. And that when he stretches out his hand and heals the blind man, we don't say, did he do that as man or did he do that as God? No, he did that as the incarnate word because he is God and he is man perfectly, truly, as we say in the liturgy, without division, without mingling, without alteration. And while that may sound like I'm now, okay, now I'm defining things, but even John defines certain parameters of orthodoxy, and he says, don't go beyond this. And he specifically says that it's the one who goes beyond or goes too far and therefore does not abide in the doctrine of Christ that has now lost and does not have the Father and the Son. This was actually always at the center of our argument as the Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, was that we don't press the mystery too far. And we don't inquire and speculate and divide the natures and divide the hypostases and divide the activities in Christ and ask, well, how can this mystery be and how does it happen any more than we inquire into the mystery of the Eucharist and how Christ is truly present in the Eucharist? We don't inquire into that. We don't ask questions, but faith, as St. Philoxenos of Mabig says, faith holds on to what it cannot see and it does not press further than what has been revealed by God. And it does not speculate because all of the heresies uh, against Christ and against the doctrine of Christ, in fact, lead away from true knowledge of God and from true love of God. And the irony in that is that those who would speculate about Christ or press too far in the mystery of the incarnation are trying to know Christ better. But because they are seeking to understand Christ more, merely by speculating and intellectually breaking down the incarnation or intellectually breaking down the Trinity, they end up in seeking to come close to God, actually becoming further away from him. Whereas those who draw near in faith, accepting what has been revealed, but not going beyond what has been revealed to us, and not seeking to know more than we are able as human beings to know, and placing too much confidence in human wisdom and human intelligence. That leads off the path. 
faith simply holds on to what it cannot see. And so loving the truth is loving Jesus, not loving abstract facts about him. And so we love God by loving the truth, loving it in Christ. And John says to not even give communion or the Christian greeting to heretics. And John explicitly says, the, do not welcome him into the house and do not give him the greeting. Now, the early churches used to meet, originally met, in houses of wealthy patrons and patronesses. And so this is what he means when it says, don't welcome him into the house. There weren't church buildings as we have them today, but there were houses where the Eucharist was celebrated and where the church met together. And so what he's saying is don't welcome him into that mystical assembly and don't welcome the heretics by giving them the Christian greeting. This doesn't mean don't say hi to them. It means don't give them the kiss of peace. Certainly be a decent human being to heretics. Now, Father Malati mentions in his commentary on 2 John, free bishops who fought free heresies denying or undermining that Christ has come in the flesh and using this argument from 2 John. So he mentions, of course, the Apostle St. John himself. And the Apostle John was arguing against protognostics, and the protognostics were uh, also proto-docetists, and both were denying that the humanity of, or the docetists at least, were specifically denying that the Gnostics were pretty diverse, so I don't want to say anything there. The, uh, the docetists were denying that Christ's humanity was real. They believed that it was simply a figment of the imagination, and there were many uh, heretical medieval sects such as the Bogomils and Paulicians, who also held this, that, that Christ was simply a divine being who simply appeared to be human. And this is who the Apostle John was fighting against, to the point where there's a tradition that one of the heretics who taught, named Corinthus, who taught this proto-Docetist, proto-Gnostic sort of teaching, uh, was in a bathhouse, and John entered in and saw him and walked back out, lest the bathhouse fall back, fall down on Corinthus for his blasphemies. But this was who John was arguing against, was people who were very clearly saying Christ didn't come in the flesh. They were very clearly saying that the flesh was just imaginary. And then the second bishop that Father Melati mentions is Athanasius. And Athanasius was opposing the Arians. Now, the Arians did not deny the humanity of Christ, but they denied that Jesus was the eternal Son of God and said that he was an eternal creature who existed because God willed him to exist. And so this denies who came in the flesh. And this denies that it really is the eternal word of God who was incarnate, as the apostle John himself says in his gospel, in the beginning 
was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the true God who came in the flesh. And as Athanasius says, if it was not God who came and saved us, how can we be saved? He is the eternally begotten of the Father. And the third heresy that Father Melati mentions is Pope Theophilus against the Chalcedonians, who divided Christ into two natures, into two hypostases, and through and into two activities. So they said that the human, the word, uh, or the, the flesh, does what is appropriate to it, and the word does what is appropriate to it. So now the flesh is not the flesh of the word, but the flesh is, is almost some other reality separate from the logos who dwells in him. And this is a very tricky one because they affirm the true divinity and the true humanity of Christ, but they're separating the human and divine natures after the union and separating the activities so that we have him doing one thing as God and one thing as a man. But again, he reaches out his hand and heals the blind man by touching his hand. And so you can't say that he did it as man or that he did it as God. It's in the power of God to heal the man born blind. But it's, it's not in the power of the human hand. But it was through the use of touching the blind man with the human hand that the blind man saw. So how can we explain that? How can we pry into the mystery? How can we divide between natures and hypostases and energies and activities in Christ? And this is an attempt to properly understand God, but the problem is because it is based on coming to knowledge of God, not through loving God and loving your neighbor, so that is living a pure life, and through mystical apprehension of God, receiving him by faith, which believes and does not doubt, and simply accepts what has been revealed by God, and rather is seeking to come to a knowledge of God through intellectual speculation, through breaking down exactly how the union works, ultimately ends up undermining the union of humanity and divinity in Christ. That the eternal word of God united himself to a human hypostasis, one hypostasis, one nature composite out of two natures and hypostases. And what we have is the incarnate word of God. And all of this is, is what is said in our theotokias, in our liturgy, 
in the writings of, of the fathers of St. Cyril and St. Severus and St. Philoxenus. And it's not about intellectual speculation for us. And this is very important because in 2 John, we see that it is precisely through loving the truth, not as an abstract concept, but as a person who has revealed himself to us and revealed himself to us in order to save us, that we come to know God. And we come to know God through loving God and keeping his commandment. And his, what is his commandment? The same that you have had from the beginning, that you love one another and that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the true way to knowing God. And it is a mystical way, but it is the right way. And if we follow mere intellectual speculation and pry into things that we have no business prying into, we will ultimately get further away from God, even in the midst of seeking to draw near to him. So all Christological heresy is based on prying into mystery and rationalism, leading to failure to know God spiritually in an effort to know facts about him. Faith accepts but does not pry where it should not. It accepts this mystery and is drawn into the life of love for God and neighbor. False doctrine about Christ impedes true knowledge of God. The proto-Gnostics demanded to know how can God take on flesh? How can God actually be incarnate? And so they denied the reality of his humanity. The Arians were very much rationalists. And however much the Arians presented themselves as simply, oh, well, we're just believing what the Bible says, they were very rationalist. And you can see that, see that by reading Arius. And they demanded to know how the Father and the Son could be separate persons and yet be God. And so they said that the Son was a creature. And the Chalcedonians demanded to know how there could be a true humanity from a, a true, I'm sorry, a true union, a true of and from humanity and divinity in Christ without mingling and without confusion. And so they pried into that mystery and ultimately divided Christ's apostasies and natures. But again, faith accepts food does not pry where it does not. It accepts this mystery and is drawn into the life of love for God and neighbor. False doctrine about Christ impedes the knowledge of God. And John in, in 2 John 10 to 11 proceeds to say, if anyone comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house. Don't re even receive him into the assembly. Don't let him take of the Eucharist. So he decrees in a certain form excommunication. And so this is an important reminder for us that excommunication is not simply for punishment. It's not simply for revenge. It is for the salvation 
both of those who are being excommunicated to try and bring them back to repentance and for those in danger of being led astray. Because if someone is teaching heresy or is leading an immoral life and others may follow their example, then the church has that right and that duty to put a stop to that bad example by excommunicating those who are leading others astray and saying that is not the way to go. And I think we saw that this week. There was a former priest in the Coptic, or um, well, I guess he wasn't a priest when he was in the Coptic church, but he, there was a former member of the Coptic church who was teaching uh, very Pentecostal and Protestant ideas about us knowing God or being able to know God just personally, just one-on-one -on -one without the fellowship of the saints and without the communion of the church. And there was a priest who had been teaching what this man who was excommunicated some years ago was teaching. And um, this week, that priest was excommunicated by the Pope. So why is that? Is that simply to be mean? Well, no. It's because there are those who are in danger of being led astray. And for their salvation, to prevent them from being led astray into false teaching and false living, the church uses excommunication. But it's not simply saying, oh, well, you can never partake of this table, or you can never be welcomed into the house and fellowship of God and take the Eucharist. And, but no, it's saying, repent. Like St. Paul said, deliver over the sinner for the destruction of the flesh that the soul may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The person who he was referring to there in Corinth repented. And so in his second letter to the Corinthians, he told the Corinthians, receive him back. And that's very important to remember, especially, I don't know what everyone's background here is. I'm assuming many of you grew up in the church, but at least where I came from in the Protestant world, excommunication often was thought of in terms of you are simply cut off from the church and there is basically no hope for you. But it isn't that. It is for the salvation of those who have gone astray and those who are being led astray. Second John closes out saying, I have many things to write to you, but do not wish to write with papyrus and ink. But I hope to come and speak with you in your presence, face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. He longs to see the lady, whether that's the Virgin Mary or a local church, to see her face to face. I do think that this would be strange language to use if it's referring to the whole church. 
So I do think that it is either talking to an individual church or an individual person to have full joy. And this is something that's good to remember, especially in, in these days when it's harder for us to meet together as a church. And we're having liturgy outside and many of us are watching liturgy's live stream. We're all missing the communion of saints. So let's remember that we do have full joy in the communion of saints and that we can also have joy in the remembrance of those saints and in the remembrance of their love, just as the apostle John had joy in the remembrance of the saints whom he had seen, but was now absent from. And yet he longs to see them face to face, to have complete and full joy. The last verse, the children of your elect sister greet you, could be interpreted differently based on whether you see this as a letter written to the Virgin Mary, in which case it's probably talking about some other Christian woman, or if it is talking about, if he is writing to a specific local church, then it's probably referring to whatever local church he was with at the moment when he was writing. In either case, let us remember the important thing to continue to greet the brethren and to greet all of the saints so that we may remain in touch and remain in that communion of love and joy, walking about in love, walking about in the fellowship of God and of Christ. And holding that love for God and neighbor in our hearts and holding that truth about Christ in our hearts that we may truly glorify and honor him who has called us to his own kingdom. The book of Third John is written to a man named Gaius. There are quite a few individuals named Gaius who are mentioned in the New Testament. So there is quite an open question of who it is written to. It could be Gaius of Derby, who is mentioned in the book of Acts. It could be Gaius of Corinth or of Macedonia. Or it could be another Gaius of whom we are unaware. In any case, this was, Third John was written to an individual who had received messengers from John before his arrival to help a church who was that was struggling because of discord caused by pride. The, epistles, the epistle shows us what happens when pride and selfishness replace love. So in Second John, we have the exhortation to love. And then in Third John, we have a clear example of love in action and the opposite, pride and selfishness in action. Third John says, the priest to Gaius the beloved, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, concerning everything, I pray 
that you may have success and good health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly at the coming of the brethren, bearing witness to you about the truth. Just as you are walking about in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking about in the truth. Beloved, you are doing faithfully whatever you are doing to the brethren and to strangers. These same ones who are worthy of God have testified about your love before the church, whom you will do well to equip on their journey. For on behalf of the name they went out, receiving nothing from the Gentiles, we ought to readily receive such as these in order that we might be co-workers in the truth. Remember again, when he uses the term the truth and in the truth, he's not simply referring to abstract concepts. He's referring to a person, to Jesus Christ, who is truth himself and the incarnate truth, the incarnate God who reveals the Father to us. In verse 2, we see that John is concerned for the bodily and physical health of Gaius. It is a good thing to be concerned about the bodily and physical health of ourselves and others. And this is against the same proto-docetists that John opposed in the second in his second epistle because they downplayed the body. But John says that the body is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. God created it to be an instrument of worship and an instrument of holiness. And so any departure from seeing the physical and the material as good is a step away from Christian orthodoxy. And we should desire and pray not simply for the spiritual health, but also for the physical health of all Christians. Because we are not simply a soul that is using a body, but we are both soul and body. And from the two, we are one human. Just as Christ is from a divine hypostasis and a human hypostasis, and from the two, he is one incarnate hypostasis of God the Word. So we are from the soul, from the body, but we're one, and they're connected. And the body is to be used as an instrument of righteousness, as an instrument of holiness. That's why when we fast, we're not opposing the body, we're not hating the body, but we are seeking to bring the body into subjection so that it may not be subject to sin, but now may instead be an instrument of holiness, an instrument of purity, an instrument of righteousness. And so the soul and the body are working together. They are not to be divided into as if the soul is doing one thing and the body is doing another, but our soul and body always act together. And both make up the human being. And God cares for both. Otherwise, he would not have created us as these material beings. So, in verse 3, we see that those who visited Gaius from John saw him, that is, saw Gaius, 
walking about in the truth. And they testified to the apostle St. John concerning Gaius. Whether these messengers were requested by the apostle or whether they were sent voluntarily by Gaius, we don't know. Perhaps they were sent because of the disruption that was in the church where Gaius was worshiping or was trying to worship. In either case, they were Gaius's letter of commendation and of recommendation. And we should learn from this to also recommend those who do good, those who serve well, and to commend their work in the Lord, even as the Apostle John did. And he says that they have testified about your love before the church. That was the most important thing in the apostles' mind. Not they testified about your intellect or they testified about your preaching ability or they testified about how you have the whole Westminster Catechism memorized. That was the old Presbyterian Catechism from my old church. But no, they testified about your love. It's not wrong to be intellectual. It's not wrong to have good speaking ability. It's not wrong to think deeply and intricately about doctrine. But what is most important is love. What we cannot leave off is loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, Because that is the way to true knowledge of God. And Gaius had this. He had love. He had love for God and love for his neighbor and evidently was used to and well-trained in the practice of helping those who are preaching the gospel. There were often many who were traveling in those days in order to preach the gospel and received lodging and help assistance in whatever form from more wealthy members of the church says, for on behalf of the name they went out, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. This is another good reason, by the way, to think that Third John is written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John, in his writings, is quite Jewish. I know John is often thought of, the book of John is often thought of as not being very Jewish, but it actually is, once you understand what Judaism really fully is like. And he uses the term the name. The Jews often refer to God simply as Hashem, the name. And he speaks of those outside the church as Gentiles and still speaks of those inside the church as Israel. So it's very reasonable to believe that this is a first century word. They're very much still thinking in a Jewish context, even though there are obviously Gentile members of the church already including most likely Gaius, which is a very Greek name. And what's interesting is he says that Gaius and these messengers that came from Gaius and the Gaius supported 
are working on behalf of the name. And in context, he's talking about the truth, who is Jesus Christ. So he is equating Jesus Christ, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament. He's equating the two. And John says, we ought readily to receive such as these in order that we might be co-workers in the truth. So when we receive and help and send away with blessing those who are proclaiming the gospel and those who are walking in love, in the love of God, and in the love of neighbor, we are co-workers together with them in the truth, who is Jesus Christ, and we are receiving their reward with them when we help those who are serving God, we serve God as well, and we together receive the reward in Christ. Christ never meant for us to be doing things on our own. He never meant for us to be knowing God on our own. He never meant for us to be serving God on our own. But for us to be doing it in community, and specifically in the community of the church, which is the body of the truth, the body of the incarnate one who is the truth. We are to be co-workers with each other, not each one off doing his own thing, building his own ministry, building his own name, but working together for the glory of God. We are not even made to be knowing God on our own. We need the church. We need the community of believers. We need the Eucharist where Christ gives us his body and blood. This true knowledge of God. God who is in himself three persons in one being, communal. We are brought into the fellowship of the Holy Trinity. And that happens together. That happens as a church. And that happens as we come together, support each other, love each other, pray for each other, for the health of each other's body and souls. And encourage each other every day to love God and love neighbor as we see the day approaching. But then, and so that's the example of Second John emphasized, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, love him who is the truth. Third John gives an example of those walking in the truth, which is Gaius, and those who gave a report to John about and from Gaius. We see that the example of love is working together, working in harmony, working in unity, in and through Christ, building each other up serving each other and serving the church in humility and growing towards God and gaining knowledge of God, not as each individual, 
but in the church and with the church and as a community. But now John gives an example of the opposite and of what happens when we don't walk in love. He says, I have written to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among them, has not received us. Because of this, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his works, which he is doing, speaking evil babblings against us. And not being sufficed with these, he himself does not receive the brethren and hinders whoever desires to do so, throwing them out of the church. Beloved, do not copy what is evil, but what is good. So the reason that Diotrephes went astray was that he was filled with pride. Rather than loving God and loving his neighbor as himself, he loved being first. He refused the messengers of the apostle himself. And he used excommunication as a weapon to ban from the church anyone who did not exalt and approve him. So we see here that humility and love go together and pride and sinfulness go together. Pride lifted him up, made him want to be first, made him want to, for everyone to honor him and acclaim him. He wanted to have his name be first. And so he lost love for God to the point where he did not even recognize or receive the messengers from Christ's own apostle. And so John threatens that when he comes and when he visits, that he will, like Paul, rebuke. Diotrephes and bring to remembrance the words that he said. As if to say, will he say the same things? When the apostle of the Lord is standing there next to him? It would be good, maybe, to think about would we say certain things if we were standing right next to the Pope? that maybe we're willing to say when he's on the other side of the world. And we all as, as servants of the church and whatever capacity that is, should ask ourselves, why am I serving? Is it because I like to be admired and feel pride and feel like I have the first place? Or is it because I love God and love those whom I serve and and really desire their salvation. And that could be mixed. We're fallen human beings, so we're not going to do, you know, everything either perfectly or or totally wrong. But we need to seek to root out any pride through God's grace because 
diatrophy serves as this warning that any of us appointed to ministry could end up going down the wrong road. And we need to avoid that. And so we avoid it by humility and by remembering that we are serving God and we are serving other salvation and seeking their salvation and seeking their edification in Christ. Then the Apostle John says, Beloved, do not copy that which is evil, but copy that which is good. The one doing good is from God. The one doing evil has not seen God. John brings us right back to what I said during 2 John, while we're going over 2 John. True knowledge of God, true seeing of God, cannot be separated from how we are living. Intellectual understanding about God, intellectual affirmation of facts about him, combined with sinful living does not means that I, in fact, do not know God, no matter how much I might say about him. But rather, as Christ himself said, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So we know and we have knowledge of God through loving God and loving our neighbor and through apprehending him. The way to true knowledge of God, the way to true theology is through the mystical apprehension of God, through drawing close to him in love, in humility, in purity of life, and entering into that life together with the church, which we do in and through the Eucharist when we take the body and blood, the living flesh and blood of our God. That is where true knowledge of God comes from. And by copying what is good, by being around those who are humble and those who are righteous, we can develop those virtues. Whereas if we spend all of our time with those who are evil, we will copy those who are evil and we'll begin to lose where we were at first and lose our first love. John says, Demetrius is witnessed about by all and by the truth itself, and we also testify about him. And you know that our witness is true. So those who are of the truth, those who are of the truth who is Jesus Christ, recognize spiritually, mystically, spiritually, recognize and acknowledge those who are also of the truth that they speak what is true and that is why he says you know that our witness is true gaius trusts the witness of the apostle john because he recognizes that spirit of christ in him and then we testify about those who have the spirit and those who walk in love and humility 
And John closes out by saying, I have many things to write to you, but I do not wish to write to you with ink and reed pen, but I hope to see you soon and we will speak face to face. Peace to you. Greet the brethren by name. So 3 John closes in the same way that 2 John closes. John is coming. He is going to come and see Gaius and the church. He desires to see Gaius face to face. And he closes saying to give those who walk in the truth the Christian greeting. That is, avoid those who would build up a church in their own name and a communion in their own name and a Eucharist in their own name where they are preeminent and excommunicate everyone else, but rather follow those who have love for God and love for neighbor and who walk in the truth, who is Jesus Christ, to them give the Christian greeting, the greeting of love that we give before the anaphora, and to them take the Eucharist with them and meet them. Well, beloved, that concludes our study of second and third john i hope and pray that that has been edifying and useful thank you daniel that was wonderful let's close with the lord's prayer in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit one god amen O lord make us worthy to pray through the intercessions of our holy mother saint mary saint john the beloved and saint basil the great and all the saints angels martyrs and prophets here's when we say thankfully our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of his only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Depart in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you.